Season two of the Sober Curious podcast is supported by Groovy, creators of three delicious alcohol-free drinks that are perfect for any social occasion. There can be even more pressure to drink during the holiday season. And whether you're socializing with family or friends, thanks to Groovy, now you can bring your own booze-free beer and Prosecco to the party. Even better, all groovy drinks are low in calories and brewed with natural health-enhancing terpenes. So you can join in the fun while still putting your health first. Groovy can be found at getgroovy.com. That's getgruvi.com or in specialty markets throughout Colorado. If you live elsewhere in the US, you can also get 20% off any online order with the code RUBY20. So welcome back to the Sober Curious podcast with me, Ruby Warrington. My guest this week is a bit of a legend, one of the very few female dance music DJs to have success. Welcome back to the Sober Curious podcast with me, Ruby Warrington. My guest this week is a bit of a legend, one of the very few female dance music DJs to have sustained a successful career. DJ Paulette started spinning tunes in Manchester in the 1990s British rave heyday and has been working behind the decks for 27 years. Now in her early 50s, she got sober curious after she was diagnosed with early onset diabetes and was able to completely reverse the diagnosis by cutting out booze alone. However, this lifestyle shift did not go down well with her music industry pals, and she shares her experiences of staying true to herself and her needs in the face of massive peer pressure to drink. There are so many deeply human takeaways in this episode, as Paulette also talks very openly about her struggles with her mental health, which came to her head when she became the main carer for her mother after she got sick, as well as the detrimental impact of alcohol during her menopausal years. A true original and a major inspiration to me, US listeners in particular will also enjoy her delightful Manchester accent. Okay, so here we go. This is Paulette. Paulette, thank you so much for joining me today. Where it's an are you? Pleasure. <laughs> where are you? Where are you calling from? We didn't get that far yet. I'm calling from Manchester, so um, Manchester, Whitefield, um, Whitefield, because it's named after the field of wheat. Believe it or not, in the olden huh. days, in the very olden days, wheat was spelt W H Y T, so Whitefield. Interesting. And is that where you're from originally? Yeah, believe it or not, um, I was born in North Manchester General Hospital, which mm. is Crumpsall Hospital, which is about 10, 10 minutes down the road from where I live now. Um, I used to cry when I was younger because my sisters would say, no, you weren't born in North Manchester General Hospital. You were born in Springfields, which is Springfields is like the mental home that's <laughs> attached to North Manchester General oh, Hospital. And they, but, you know, years and years later, as I've had various ins and outs with mental health, I'm like, mm, maybe they were right. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness. Also, Springfield's also where The Simpsons is based, isn't it? I kind of like. <laughs> I know. And I just took a mouthful of water as you said that, and I was just about to splurge at the screen. Yes, <laughs> Springfield is very much the, the Simpsons thing, but yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for placing this call today. I think it's always nice um, to get a feel. I'm, I'm here at, at home in Brooklyn, in New York, far away from where I was born. I was born in 
Tottenham Court Road. I'm a Londoner oh, through and through. And I just really also true. wanted to kind of like, you know, draw draw attention to where you're from. I know my American listeners are going to be freaking out over your accent. So everybody <laughs> in America, enjoy Paulette's beautiful Manchester accent. Manchester yeah. accent for the next hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't get more mank than me. No, I love it. I love it. Um, so let's talk about Sober Curious. I think, I think if my memory serves me right, and you can correct me, we met, I think, about seven years ago when I was editing Pasha Magazine in Ibiza. And yeah. We wound up at a very boozy lunch, like a press yes. lunch thing at Pike's Hotel. Yep. Pike's Hotel is a kind of infamous party place in Ibiza. Yeah, and still is. And still is, and has got, it's having a whole renaissance now, mm. right? And mm. I can't remember at the time, that was the summer 2012 for me when I really did begin to question my drinking in a big way. And I can't, I think that I was not drinking during that lunch. Mm. Um, and I can't remember at the time whether you were or not, but obviously. I was, I was uh, drinking then. And I do remember you weren't drinking and you right. saying that you weren't drinking and me mm. thinking, oh, isn't this kind of strange but then you know as time has gone on I understand exactly where you were so you mm. know, we'll get to chatting about that later but mm. you know I think it's it's all part of the journey and you know cer certainly I mean I DJ for a living mm. and I work in in bars and restaurants and night and I've worked in the nightlife now for 27 years right wow 27 years straight DJing and um, I've worked in the music industry for 33 years so you know the, the two of those and drinking <laughs> and doing whatever else goes along with it is just you know it's a 33 year stretch yeah and um, I do think that for everyone at some point you reach the point where you think, I can't do this anymore. You know, mm -hmm. it's like, if I want to continue working, something's got to give. Mm. So I have to give up one thing or another, or if I keep this on, then I'm going to lose myself. So you have to make a decision. And I know certainly for me, I had to make a decision. What I wanted to what I wanted to do for mm. the rest of my life, how I wanted to do it, and what I was willing to sacrifice in order to do that. And for me, it was just a fairly easy decision. It's like sacrifice the alcohol. <laughs> right. But a lot yeah. of people don't, right? I think a lot of no, people who are in the music industry, and particularly in the nightclub element, will, will leave the industry when they reach that point. And it might, yeah. not, even be a, it might not even be as evident as oh shit, I can't keep drinking and partying the way I am and yeah. survive, right? It might just be more like the feeling of, oh, this is getting a bit tiring or I think I'm growing out of it. Yeah, or, yeah, but I don't yeah. think necessarily people automatically come to that point of like, I could continue if I just remove this substance that's yeah. actually, that's actually <laughs> making, me that's awful. making me feel shit all the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it is, I mean, it's ridiculous. It is that simple. But a lot, like you say, a lot of people will just bounce out of it without yeah. questioning what those things are that, that they could be actually other steps that they could take that will suddenly cause this relief or release mm. and enable them to, to continue for years, years mm. more 
Mm. without actually battering themselves mentally, psychologically and biologically, you know, that there are ways to do that. But I think it's all, there's also that all or nothing mindset that goes along with, um, you know, working in the music industry and DJing and music particularly, where um, you either do it or you don't. You either take drugs or you don't. There's no middle ground. You either drink or you don't. There's no Mm -hmm. middle ground. You can't have one, you know. It's just the mindset. It's just, and I think if you can change the mindset, if you can get a more healthy mindset, get a more healthy way of um, working within the the medium, working within this particular career, then, you know, life can become much, much easier, but it takes time. It's a process. It doesn't, and you know, all these little adages, it doesn't happen overnight. Mm. You will slip mm. and you do slip. You know, it, it's, it, it's, it's not, it really isn't, uh, I suppose it can be an easy journey, but there are things around that make it more difficult because you can change yourself, but you can't change everybody else around you. So where you can stop drinking, but everybody else will still offer you, will still offer you and will still offer you and won't take no for an answer. So that's what makes it difficult. Yeah, because that's the thing. It's like there's the internal piece of making the decision, I'm going to quit this. There's the physical sort of attachment let's use that yeah. word, to the substance, a substance yeah. which is very addictive. And then if you're in an environment where it's kind of the lifeblood in many ways of what fuels that scene, um, you've got the added sort of pressure and the added difficulty of, of kind of counteracting your environment, the environmental pressure to engage with it, like continuously yeah. as well. So I'd love if you could say, so you said in 2012, you were still drinking. Yeah, when did, I was. When did, your, um, when did this questioning, when did your own sober curious kind of path begin and what did that look like for you? Well, mine began, first of all, um, it was 2013 or t- no, 2014, I'd had a diabetes test in 2013 and um, it came up showing as um, pre-diabetic, mm. um, but type two. Mm. So they, the doctors said, you know, you're not overweight, you're very fit. You know, I was, I've always maintained a weight between 55 and 60 kilos yeah is that right no kilo no more yeah that sounds right Can't work it out 55 and 60 kilos <laughs> nine and a half stone to ten stone right, however yeah. that works out um so my weight wasn't ridiculous i'm mm. five foot eight i'd swim you know while i was in when i'm in ibiza i'm swimming in the sea every day i'm eating healthy food mm. i wasn't eating anywhere like as much sweets and sugar as i eat in in England because I mm. don't particularly like Spanish chocolate, <laughs> <laughs> you know, which helps. But I did. I, I didn't really like Spanish sweets, so I was eating more fruit. I was mm. eating, so it just didn't. I couldn't understand why I'd had this pre-diabetes 
thing. There was nothing we could see in the way I was living my life that was causing it apart from alcohol. Mm. And alcohol is full of sugar, everything. And I drink vodka, I drink apple juice. That's my my poison or Mm. or my drink or my absolute go-tos were. It's either vodka and apple juice, I like a glass of champagne, or I was drinking red wine. Mm. And all of those are, you know, the fermentation, the distillery process, it's all sugar-based, everything. So um, around 2014, I started to pull back from um, drinking and taking drugs, Mm -hmm. which went down like, if you'll excuse the vernacular, it went down like a fart in a lift with all of my friends because they (laughs) were like, you know, oh, you're not drinking. You know, there was no, for me, the party kind of, the party continued while I was in the club listening to music, but I wasn't doing after parties because it was just like, mm. that I'm not going to parties for the same reason that you're going to parties anymore. I'm going to parties to listen to music and you're going to music to get wasted in mm. and get absolutely you know, blathered on alcohol. That's not mm. why I'm. That's not why I'm going anymore. So mm. there was this Grand Canyon split that was suddenly <laughs> appearing between me and my friends in Ibiza because I just suddenly wasn't in the party anymore. I was, I was there for the music, but I wasn't in the party. Yeah, right. You're on a different level. I was on I, a whole different path. You're not engaging in all of the stuff that goes around the actual, the music piece, which even when I think back to, you know, people think about Ibiza as a clubbing, a clubbing holiday, right? But when yeah. I think back to the time, the actual percentage of time I actually spent in clubs on dance floors was probably about 10% yeah. the time that I spent quote unquote partying in Ibiza. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and not leaving a room or not leaving a house and getting there and then get, you know, getting to the party and you'd be there like half an hour and it's like, oh, it's finished. How did we do that? It's like, yeah, because we didn't actually go there till three o'clock, you know, like four o'clock. So it's really interesting you bring that up straight away because I think that's one of the hardest things for people is how it impacts our friendships. And I'm wondering, you obviously had, um, you know, you were motivated by this health issue that had yeah. come up. Yeah. And also, side note, I think it's really interesting. We, I haven't really spoken to many people at all about the link between alcohol and diabetes. You hear about alcohol and obesity or alcohol and heart disease, yeah. alcohol and anxiety, but alcohol and diabetes, it makes so much sense now yeah. that you're sugar saying is just it. full of sugar. Like, yeah. and, 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 you know, I proved myself right in that a year later when I went back to get the test and I'd stopped it. I mean, I, I went from, drinking to absolutely not drinking in 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 2014 and mm. so by 2015 when i went back to get the test done again it was clear wow so it's like wow well i hold my hands up i'm absolutely right on this like the 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 only thing i changed the mm. absolute only thing i changed was i stopped drinking 
So you didn't so drink I, at all in that year? You were no, 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 I was just totally boring and it, it, it just annoyed everybody because it's just all of a sudden I just wasn't the same party person anymore. Mm. Um, so, so, so it sounds like it wasn't actually that difficult for you to actually quit drinking. Did you find yourself... Oh, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was because it's like, I got it and it's like, oh good, it's gone now, I can go back to normal. And right. then I start, started like reintroducing the care bus and then by 2016 I go back to the doctors and they're like, well, it's back. Mm, wow so it's like oh that's so clear right, cut. okay so it is it is really clear cut for me the link was very clear cut because yeah. it was the only thing I was doing that I stopped doing and started again that I could you know I could the correlation was clear mm, mm. so so, uh, so you were actually missing being part of the part I was just my question was kind of like if you, you were motivated for health reasons to quit, you had a reason to do this. Yeah. And you obviously really love music yes, and were still really enjoying that aspect of it. And I'm wondering how, what was harder, the, the, the stopping drinking or the pressure you were getting or the feeling like an outsider or the fact you were, you know, being quote unquote boring. Yeah, the feeling like an navigate. outsider. The feeling like an outsider and the feeling boring is a big one. I mean, I still have that now, you know, <laughs> where, you know, even working in bars in Manchester, working, you know, like... I was working in Liverpool and Todmorden this weekend and they could not get their heads around the fact that I didn't want a drink and they pushed it so hard that I was like, okay, we'll just get me a vodka and apple and I just left it on the side. Mm. It's like, okay, we'll get me a drink, but I'm not going to drink it. I'll drink the water, the vodka will stay there. You're happy, I'm happy and that's mm-hmm. the end of it. <laughs> and it's just, it just gets so tiring and tiresome that... People can't hear that you don't want a drink. Mm. And yet, if you were, if you were a drug addict, mm-hmm. say, mm-hmm. if you were absolutely hooked on heroin or if you were hooked on cocaine, people wouldn't come and offer you those drugs in the same way that they will still pressure you to take a drink. They just wouldn't do it. They would, they would respect that you'd chosen not to take drugs for your own sanity, for your own health and everything, and they'd leave you alone. Mm. But for some reason, if you stop drinking, people don't take that as seriously as any other addiction. Or I just don't think they do. I, I think yeah. people will ignore you if you say, I don't want a drink. Do you think if you said, you know, if you were in AA and said, told people I'm in AA and I'm an alcoholic, it would be different? Um, well, I've, I've got friends who have been through the AA and have been through the rehab and are alcoholics. And I, I know from seeing how they've been treated by our friends that no, people do not listen to you if wow. you say you're an alcoholic. They don't. They don't. They'll just say, oh, you know, you'll be all right tomorrow. And then offer them another drink. It's like, what are you doing? What are you? It's just bizarre. It's just bizarre with alcohol. For some reason, because it's okay to buy it, 
And mm. because it's readily available in the supermarket mm. and because the stigma seems to be a lot less somehow for being an alcoholic to being a drug addict, even though they're mm. exactly the same. Mm. Mm. In their own way, they're exactly the same. Absolutely. Well, alcohol is a drug. Even the fact that we don't call alcohol, we say drugs and alcohol. Like yeah, alcohol is- we separate it. <laughs> yeah. And it's bizarre. It's exactly the same thing. You have exactly the same. I mean, I never, um, you know, I've not been... Um, linked or attached to alcohol in any deep way at all Mm. but I have friends who have been or are recovering alcoholics and the 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 MO is exactly the same hiding the drink hiding the way they're drinking hiding the times they're drinking and being really secretive and shifty about it. It's exactly the same. So I don't understand why when pe- when you tell people that you're stopping drinking that they don't respect it. Mm. Have you I spoken to any, have you spoken to have you spoken to any of your friends about that and kind of got more deeply into it with anyone? Have you come up with your own theories about it? You know, in my book So the Curious I talk about how often our if it's a choice not to drink it can really shine a very strong beam of awareness on how or not, how the other person is using alcohol yes, and their own their own attachment to alcohol. Like that's yes, it does. thinking, wow, it would be really hard for me not to drink in this situation. Yeah, and I think about? it does. Yeah, it's exactly the same. You know, like, and I keep linking it back to drugs because mm. we do separate the two, but I find them identical like if you say you're not doing any drugs then it does shine that light and in it it does hold a mirror to people about their own usage and the same with alcohol if you say i i don't want to drink then it does hold a mirror to the faces of the people who are drinking and shows them that they are they're drinking a lot where you're not drinking anything. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, in terms of my last boyfriend, and I, it was just unbearable because I wasn't drinking and he would still pour me a glass of wine and he'd have drunk nearly a bottle of wine in the time it took me to even drink the tiniest top off a glass of wine he'd have done the whole bottle right but because and i'm like glass, he feels okay about that yeah 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 and he'd just pour me one and no i wouldn't drink it because i wasn't drinking and it'd stay there and he'd end up drinking mine and i'm like well why don't you you know that basically you're pouring me a glass to make you feel all right about drinking a bottle I don't, and that, I think that is why people just yeah. pressure you yeah. because it makes them feel all right because they're going to have a drink. Like if you want to have a drink, drink on your own. I don't. Think like if you want to drink a bottle of wine, drink a bottle drink of wine. A bottle of wine. If you feel conflicted about that, then yeah. you have something. To don't do it. Yeah. Right. But people don't want to question it because those questions can get really 
tricky and complicated. So how have you managed to, how have you managed to kind of navigate this in your friendships? I I, I assume, because this is what happens for so many of us, that some of those friendships have just naturally kind of died away. Yeah. What about, about, you know, your old, the, the pals from those drinking days that have endured the friendships that have endured? How have, how and why have those been able to endure? Have you been able to have this conversation kind of openly with people in your life? Yeah, yeah. They're older. Generally, the ones that have stuck around are the ones that are older and that they understand their relationship with alcohol. Right. To my relationship with alcohol. Right, yeah. Although, you know, I still have friends, and this is just totally ridiculous, <laughs> that will buy me alcohol. <laughs> Every time they go away, they will go away and they'll come back and they'll buy me a bottle of vodka. (laughs) I have a cupboard full of bottles of vodka. (laughs) And even on, you know, my old, my DJ rider, I've got a bottle of vodka, but that's not for me. That's for whoever comes and, you know, wants a drink for, you know. I get them the free drinks because the apple juice is for me, the vodka is right. for them. You know, so it's <laughs> just so I just have this collection from people that do still buy me um, alcohol. But I think generally the older ones understand that, you know, for me, it's a lot easier for mm. me to be in my own head and I prefer not to drink, you know, and as time has gone on as well, since I, I, I've had various um, battles with mental health over the last couple of years. Mm. So I absolutely had to stop drinking at some point because it just wasn't helping in the recovery. And because I wanted to um, recover without recourse to medication, then the alcohol had to go because right. there was no way of regulating the treatment whilst alcohol was in play because it it was just causing too much of a it was causing too many um peaks and troughs right and so the friends that have stuck around understand uh, they know a lot more about my motivations to stopping drinking and they don't actually pressure it and for themselves they know that if they want to drink they can go ahead i'm not stopping them but Mm. Mm. you know so it's the friends that you've been able to be honest and vulnerable and real with about your your, what's going on for you who actually then can have an understanding of okay now i understand why it's such a big deal she's not just being party pooper like i have respect for her journey and what she needs yeah which is which is great and it's really encouraging to people who might be in that space it's like a lot of the time i think people when they're experiencing that pressure can make up excuses like oh i'm driving or oh i'm just doing a, a health kick for a month but if the real reason is you know what alcohol gives me a lot of anxiety actually yeah. sharing that with someone means they're going to be a lot less likely to continue to pressure you or make you feel bad or make yeah. you boring and it is that because alcohol does have that effect it's you know maybe not so much when i'm drinking it Mm because i you know (laughs) i think i'm quite funny when i drink but it's just the day after when i'm holding my head in my hands and i'm uh and my insecurities are magnified by a hundred and and i'm 
anxious more than I need to be mm. and I'm nervous more than I need to be and it's like okay that was maybe not such a good idea yeah I think a lot of people relate to that could you share a little bit more about your the the mental health journey that you've been on yeah well first of all um it's quite a complicated journey because in the first instance it came about because I was, when I came back to the UK from Ibiza, I came back to look after my mum. Mm-hmm. And um, I was living at my, in my mother's house. And she had, in the first two years of me being back, she had like three really serious um, intensive care unit um, stays or crises Mm. which with me being in the house I was the Mm. first responder you know I was the person that either found her in whatever state or yeah and had to deal with getting the ambulance getting her to the hospital calling all the family um and it was just you know there were three really severe shocks for me and then on top of that it wasn't just those shocks it was her um rehabilitation after it Mm. and the intensity of being a 24 7 carer and and being in the bedroom next to somebody who um was in one way you know they there was an opiate addiction that we had to regulate there were just all manner of things going on Mm. which meant that she didn't sleep properly which meant that you know she was probably averaging three hours sleep a night which if you're in the bedroom next door then you're kind of your sleep patterns or, or rather not yours my sleep patterns were all over the place and I was working at night as well. So I'd be like getting in at two o'clock in the morning and then she'd be up at four. So I'd only have two hours sleep before I'm having to run her a bath or help her out of the bath or, or all sorts of things. So I was just absolutely fried. So the first time I went and um, sought help because I knew I was just really borderline, like it, it was just. Um, I was very nervous, I was very snappy, um, I was very depressed, I I was just all over the place Mm -hmm. and um, I went to the doctors and they said well you've got carer fatigue in the first instance Mm -hmm. but there was something else that had happened um, that triggered um, that triggered a lot deeper um, a lot of work that went a lot deeper into the psyche and um that meant really because I'd chosen to do the inner work and because I'd chosen to do the uh counseling without um taking any medication taking any uppers or downers or mood regulators then they said we really think you need to stop drinking and I didn't think I was drinking that much at the time you know I'd pretty much reduced it but Mm -hmm. they were like "Mm, you know 
we just think it would be better if we weren't drinking at all. Wow. So it had to go from, you know, maybe the occasional glass to absolutely nothing. Mm. And that was, I think it was hardest working in bars because I'm working three nights a week. Mm -hmm. And it was hardest working in the bars where they, you know, they're making cocktails, they want you to try stuff. They want you to, you know, they, and, and you kind of have to be seen to be drinking if you're working in a bar. Mm. And I was just like, well, you know, I don't, and I didn't really feel like I could explain to them exactly the reason or that I should explain to them exactly yeah. the reason why I'd stopped drinking. I'm pausing this episode to tell you about a new brand that is all set to seriously shake up, pun intended, haha, <laughs> the sober curious cocktail scene. Liars is a full lineup of 12 non-alcoholic spirits that have been crafted using all natural essences, extracts and distillates to match the exact taste, aroma and even appearance of regular spirits, but with zero alcohol as a base. This opens up a whole world of sophisticated spirit-free options, making it easier than ever to pass on the booze, stay true to what feels good for you, and experience all the benefits of living hangover-free. Made in Australia and launching in the UK and the US this month, you can learn more about the brand, get recipes, and find your local stockist at liars.co. That's L-Y-R-E-S dot co. And don't forget, you can also join me to have this Sober Curious conversation in real life at my 2020 retreat at Kripalu in Massachusetts. Over three days and two nights, I'll be leading participants through a carefully curated series of workshops and interactive exercises to get deeper into some of the big whys for why you drink, understanding which can be the cornerstone of a lasting and sustainable shift in how you use booze the way that you do. You can sign up and find more details about the program on the Kripalu website, that's K-R-I-P-A-L-U dot org, or at rubywarrington.com forward slash events. Now back to Paulette. So for them, it was just... a place, aren't there, for, those, for the more vulnerable... For, for that discussion, yeah. and yeah. that discussion really wasn't open to them, so yeah. it was just easier for me to say, oh, I'm driving. Right. And I just drive everywhere, so... It, you know, they'd see my car parked and it's like, all oh, right, okay, yeah, we won't, yeah. we won't give you a drink. And that became easier. Um, so I think at the outset, when I moved back to Manchester, I wasn't necessarily honest about why I'd stopped drinking to everyone. I just told them that I was driving. I didn't get into talking about the mental health mm. aspect of it. Mm. But I was just so mentally and psychologically fried that I had been advised and told that alcohol really shouldn't be part of the equation and, and, and couldn't be part of the equation in terms of rehabilitation and getting better and, you know, correctly so. And I came out of the first... Um, I, I did 26 weeks of therapy for <laughs> the mm. care of fatigue and, and mm. you know, it came out of it and it came out of it really well. Fantastic. 
And then the next thing that happened was I did an exhibition for the Lowry, which sounds absolutely fantastic to everyone. You know, oh, it's lit brilliant. You've got this like retrospective exhibition. So the Lowry for, for listeners is a very fancy high-end hotel in Manchester. Oh, gallery, the art gallery. Oh, gallery, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Oh, amazing. So the art gallery. Wow. So I had um, the LS Lowry collection. It is mm. in the basement and I had the floor above it. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I had 15 walls to fill for this exhibition, which I called Homebird. And the subject of it was identity, gender, sexuality, um, for a young black woman born post-Windrush, 1966, to post-Windrush parents because my parents came over to the UK in the 60s. Mm. And my family are first-generation Black British. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to talk about that experience, which is great. So I did the exhibition. It was fantastic. Mm. But I kind of, I well, not kind of, I really hit the wall when I finished the exhibition. I had a breakdown. Right. Because it just kicked up. I mean, not a breakdown that anyone really from the outside could see happening. But I knew from the inside that there was a lot going on that wasn't particularly right. And on top of the other therapy that I'd had, I just felt that it kind of unhooked something from the care fatigue that hadn't quite been um, put to bed yet. And it had opened a box on a whole other experience that I thought I'd forgotten. Right. And the drinking for that then was just an absolute no-no. It's just, I, right now, I cannot do, there's no drugs, there's no drink. I have to get as much sleep as I can. I had to watch who I was hanging out with. And it it was almost like I couldn't be around it. It wasn't even so much that I had to stop doing it for myself. Mm. I had to actually pull back from um, the more social aspect so I could work with it. But as soon as I need, as soon as I could get away from it, I had to get away from it. So that I've had kind of a, double whammy kind of experience of stopping drinking on the one way it's been a very easy gentle um personal way of stopping drinking and then in another way it's been on a mental health front it was just like an absolute um no-go area yeah right so the exhibition happened shortly after you went through this process of therapy for the care of fatigue yeah so yeah, it was all yeah, kind of like in a year lot like a, over a year long period yeah, it all yeah. Kind of came at once yeah yeah you touched on so so many really important things there i made a few notes i want to go back to a couple of things the first the first thing I'd love to, to hear a bit more about care fatigue. I, that's not a term that I've heard before, and yet there are all, uh-huh. there are people in my life who I can absolutely see w- would be suffering from that. Yeah, yeah. Like, what, can, you, um, can you tell us a little bit more about what that is? And I also just on a to zoom out because I like to do this. I kind of feel like so many of us have got intense anxiety about 
the environmental state of our planet at the moment. Yeah. And I wonder if on some level we're experiencing a mild care fatigue yeah. about our relationship to the planet, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. Because what happens, first of all, um, as a carer, you, you are looking after someone who really cannot do very many things for themselves. Mm. And with my mum, it was, it kind of fluctuated between her being able to do things and absolutely not being able to do anything at all and her being able to do a few things and her absolutely not being able to do things. And in that time, then I was very much right hand, left hand, legs as well you know so she didn't go to the shop she didn't leave the house um she washed herself but i was having to get her dressed and ready um if we did go out it's taking the walker taking the this or you know mm. oh god it was just everything was a mission mm. um i had to make sure that she ate properly because if i didn't prepare any food there would be no food in the house she would not eat mm. so I was making breakfast lunch dinner every day and I had to wake her up you know and depending on the medication because in those two years we had to change her medication to make her um to give her more life or to make her more lively in mm. fact get mm. her off the opiates get her mm. off the morphine derivatives get her off these things that were really literally smacking her out mm. Mm. um so as a carer your time first of all it's like you're living two people's lives in one body so your life doesn't go on hold or your life does go on hold for their life in one way, but you have to keep living your life. So your life happens after their their day-to-day -day life has been sorted. Mm. Mm. So it just means that you just don't get any rest. There's no respite. Mm. And even though my sisters, you know, various of my sisters live quite close by, they're not in the house. And if you're living in the house, you, you're on call literally 24-7. So if a light bulb needs replacing or if she can't put her shoes on or if her boots need zipping up or if a zip's stuck in a dress or, you know, if she's lost a hearing aid under the bed or there's mm -hmm. a million different things. You know, if she needs a wardrobe reorganising or the washing putting in the machine you know in over two years I did all the washing the cleaning the shopping the and even putting the shopping away um everything is down to the carer and you're just basically exhausted yeah exhausted but what creeps in on top of the exhaustion is there's a resentment and it's really hard to say this mm. because there's a resentment in the time that you have to give 
over in your time that you have to give over to caring for this person and the limited time that you have to care for yourself. And even though you love them and you're giving them that time willingly, there's a point where you just flip. You just honestly flip mm. and it starts to come out as, you know, little snippy, you know, anger, volatility. It's, it's, it just creeps in. And I didn't understand why it was happening to me. I didn't understand why we'd gone from being okay with each other to every day being like an argument. Everything was just suddenly becoming like scoring points off each other. And it was just becoming really hard work. And it was only, I think it was one day when my mum had taken two sets of pills on top of each other. And I just, absolutely lost it and I just thought because I was scared I just knew the potency of the pills it's like heading for overdose and to her she was just in pain and needed to stop the pain so she was taking double and at the point where I lost it I thought oh no, no, no right now I'm red zoning this is dangerous dangerous anger because you get the sense of I got the sense of being pushed too far and that was the point where I just thought there's something wrong with me mm. and when I went and spoke to the doctors about it they said this is very common this is happens with care that it, it just because it just eats up all your time and eats up all your energy and eats up all your mind space and you just end up like a shell like yeah like who am I there must who am be a I of like who am I if there's so little kind of and yeah I think you you, you mentioned this is like, I'm not a parent myself and I expect so many parents who are listening are, are actually <laughs> able to resonate with this um because yeah. I can only imagine that yeah having a young this is a very similar situation to having a young child and I think that what perhaps this care of fatigue is I don't know, it sounds to me like perhaps a, a more modern um, diagnosis. And I, I listened to a podcast recently with Gabor Mate, who's the trauma expert that lots of people are talking about now. And he was yeah. sort of saying that in our society, we really need for there to be more of a sharing of the caring. Because yeah. there are certain people who, who, are, who are having to shoulder all of the, the caretaking whilst also caretaking for themselves. And yeah. We don't live in this society where we have villages of people who can like take some of the pressure here and there. And I think maybe the takeaway from this is that, you know, if there's someone in your life or if you feel like you have care of fatigue, reach out. Like, yeah, if big person, time. If you're the person who has time to spare, offer, let me cook you guys dinner tonight. I can see you're already struggling. If you are the person with care of fatigue, can you help me, please? I need someone to just come and cook for me or I need like yeah, two hours. Because off it is that. For a swim or whatever it is, yeah. Exactly, because it is that. Because who cares for the carers? Yeah. You know, it, nobody. And generally, um, either, uh, and I 
I've spoken to a few people who've been in a similar situation to me. First of all, they said, oh, you were crazy for living in the house. You know, you need to be able to get away from that. If you can't get away from it, then, you know, it is really multiplied by 10 because you just kind of, because you are on call all the time. And you do need to reach out. I didn't tell my sisters that I was having a problem. I just tried to deal with it as much as I could and as, as much as I could. But they, what they saw was me getting angry and me getting upset rather than questioning why this was happening. They were just getting upset with me getting upset with my yeah, mom. Right. <laughs> without understanding the process that was going underneath it. Yeah. Just like she's taking absolutely everything. The caravan is taking absolutely everything. Yeah. So yeah. And that, that anger is actually um, an expression of like, it's a cry for help in a way. Yeah. It's a total cry for help. Mm. It's, it's the way, um, you know, those kind of explosions are the way of um, bringing attention to there being something not quite right in mm. the in the um not the environment but in the mm. yeah is with the with the environment in the yeah. yeah yeah so yeah i've been through that for me the 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 care of fatigue how how do we deal with that in so society um it is First of all, I mean, I, I know they do have carer support groups. Mm. Probably more so in the UK than the US, I would Maybe. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know so much how it works in the States, but I know there, there are carer support groups here and they do, um, you know, there are a lot of places. I saw it today where they have like yoga classes for people, you know, older people, and it says, carers can come free right and it's like there is this acknowledgement that you know someone's going to take them there you mm. know someone's got to take this older person to this yoga class which yeah. is so good for them yeah but it's not for the carer that's got to get <laughs> up at six o'clock in the morning get in their yeah. car get the old person put them in there get the wheelchair and then get all the way there and wait for an hour while they have their lovely little me time and you're waiting because you've got to take them back and i, I know it does that way of speaking sounds a little bit selfish, but I have to break it down like that because that's how it is for a carer. You're not, um, your life is not your own. Your life is theirs. Mm. And you're just there to help somebody else and nobody is there. You're kind of invisible to anyone um, in terms of, you wanting help yourself so in a way it made it harder not drinking at that point because it would have been the easiest thing to do in the world to totally and that it, i need a drink that <laughs> was gonna that leads perfectly onto the next thing that really came up for me while you've been describing this i there's a quote again i included in sober curious from an addiction expert and she is like you know risky drinking can often occur when a regular drinker 
starts using alcohol as a way to escape from a crisis situation mm. or a traumatic experience. And that mm. could be anything from like what you've described. It could be a divorce. Mm. It could be losing a job. It could be an illness. But when alcohol comes, becomes something that you can lean on in that situation of emotional distress is when it can very quickly become a, a much more um, dangerous habit or dangerous addiction. And I think it's so... It must. It seems to me almost like your previous experience of having seen the benefits of removing alcohol in terms of the health reasons, perhaps maybe made you more open to the idea of not drinking in this situation. When, like you said, it could have been so the easy escape. Friday night, I'm going to drink half a bottle. Oh, absolutely. I was working in. I was working in bars. I was getting right. free. I get my exactly. drinks for free. I don't even. Yeah, don't even right. have to pay for them if I don't yeah. want to. You know, so for me, actually drinking is the easiest thing to do. Yeah. Not drinking is the hardest decision to make because it means having to do something differently. It means having to ask for something different, having to ask for something, first of all, that maybe is not on the menu anyway. Mm. Mm. So whether I'm drinking mint tea at two o'clock in the morning when they've already switched the kettle off at midnight, <laughs> you know, you try finding a bar that makes coffee or tea after, yeah. you know, once the kitchen is closed, you know, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. and all I want is a cup of tea. I'm happy if I can get a cup of tea or they have to make a mocktail. And most places, you know, there are a lot of places won't, you know, push it mm. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. aren't that great at doing it a lot of places in Manchester are amazing at making mocktails and I can tell you which ones they are you put but... them on your, like, <laughs> on your, yeah. your local you can check out Paulette's Instagram for some great mocktail suggestions <laughs> absolutely <laughs> absolutely and some great mocktail um, bartenders as well but um but yeah. there's obviously part, there's something in you that knows that going the drinking route would just bring all of this, would bring you to such a low place. And the other yes, thing it, I want to, I do want to talk about a bit, um, well, before we finish up the conversation is um, the menopause piece as well. Because yeah, gosh. Else, like add, just add another layer of complexity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole situation. When we first started talking about this, you mentioned that um, going through the menopause was another point where you really realized that alcohol could not be part of your life. Oh gosh, yeah, because it just, you know, again, I don't know whether it's down to the sugar or the alcohol. I would say it's probably more to do with the sugar again. Um, but eating anything rich in sugar, eating or drinking anything rich in sugar just brings about a hot flash like that. Um, so I first noticed it. I started my menopause now. Let's see, I've been on menopause now since probably 2009. Mm. Let's see, did I start? 10 years? 2008, yeah, 2008, 2009. 2009 fully. Mm. And um, I'm one of those unlucky people that is still happening. But I, again, I don't like taking drugs to regulate things. So Mm. I'm just leaving my body to sort itself out and hoping it will switch off at some point. 
But what I noticed was when I started, I was living in Paris at the time and I was drinking a lot. And everywhere I went, my rider was champagne, bottle of Ruinard. Um, If it wasn't Ruinard, I was drinking vodka and apple juice. And Or if it wasn't that, at, at dinner, I was always on red wine. Those really, really beautiful wines. Mm. But I noticed that every time I had a drink, it just brought on a hot flash, like just ridiculous and first of all I noticed it with the champagne and then and it's very hard having a hot flash when you're DJing in a nightclub (laughs) to people who are half your age you know it's just like oh god you know people will just think I'm sweating under the lights but I know I'm absolutely drenched and I could actually stop this by not drinking alcohol because the the effect of um, drinking alcohol on top of the menopause just isn't pretty. And then (laughs) I did my own research and it did, you know, it corroborated that story Mm -hmm. that alcohol and the menopause do not mix. You know, you've mentioned a couple of times that you've chosen not to go the medication route in terms of these various issues i think you mentioned in our previous communication you you haven't taken hrt hormone replacement yeah no therapy, i haven't no you haven't no. taken anti anxiety or antidepressant no. depressant no and i no. wonder that's obviously a very personal choice and it's not you know the right choice necessarily for everybody but i wonder no, it's why, not. i wonder why you have made that decision because actually if you even think about it, you could say well you're choosing not to drink is also not using medication because we yeah. use to self-medicate yeah. right so yeah why yeah. is that so important well first of all first of all important because my absolute first run-in with mental health problems was when I got divorced and I was married quite young. I was married when I was 24 and mm. I was divorced by the time I was 26. We've mm. been together for seven years before, well, no, six years before we got mm-hmm. married. And uh, the marriage didn't last that long. It married, lasted just over a year. But it had such a detrimental effect on my mental health. I fully lost the plot. And at the I was studying at the time for my degree at Manchester Metropolitan University and the doctor, my doctor just said straight away, I was in such a state, my doctor was just like, we need to give you these antidepressants. And they gave me Prozac and it was really high potency Prozac. Mm. Mm. And I took it, I think for six months. And in the six months, I didn't know my ass from my elbow. Mm. I was going to the class, the wrong classes. I was just, I don't remember. I just, yeah, I don't remember really what happened um, from me leaving home or leaving my marital home and going mm. back to my mum's. So those six months when I was taking Prozac in between me leaving the marital home and going back to my mum's house, I don't really remember those six months. Wow. And I decided to take myself off Prozac because I, 
I went out one night, I was DJing at the Hacienda and I saw my friend Elliot and he was like, are you all right? And I remember saying to him, you know what, Elliot, I'm not all right. You could actually cut both my legs off and I wouldn't care. I don't know what I'm feeling. I don't know what's happening. I don't know what's happening in my head. I just feel like whatever's happening in my head is divorced from whatever's happening in my body. So mm. I took myself off Prozac. I just straight away, and you're not supposed to do it like mm. that either. But I was just, I was just beside myself. I was like, this is supposed to be helping, but it's just creating a whole set of other problems for me. So that was the point where I said, I'm never going to do that again because it's not right for me. It just made, and apart from that, it made me put on weight. Um, and it, it had the effect on me or it didn't have the effect that, I needed from the medication, I needed it to make me feel better. And it yeah. didn't make me feel it better, relief. it made me feel worse. It didn't yeah. give me any relief at all. It just, all it did was, and this is true about Prozac, is that it's, a, they call it a mood elevator, but what it does is it cuts the top and the bottom of the experience so you don't get any highs you don't get any lows you just get a constant a continuum continuum of okay right and what i needed so that i knew what was going on in my head i need the highs and the lows so that i know where i am in my life experience you need to know if you're happy and you need to know if you're sad you it just didn't work for me just feeling okay all the time. Mm. It didn't work for me. Mm. So, um, yeah, I took myself off that. So that's the reason why all these years later, with everything, I don't like taking medication. I don't even really take headache tablets because I need... For myself, I just need to know how I'm feeling in my, myself, in my head. And I need to know that those feelings are coming from me and that they're not coming from, or they're not being influenced by a medication which is giving me a false picture of how I'm feeling. Yeah. And then on top of that, my mum has always, always since... You know, since she's been 40 years old, my mum has taken um, prescription drugs. And that's the other reason why I am very anti-prescription drugs. You know, my mum's taken everything from Valium to Mogadon to, you know, you name it. My mum's had them all. And it's just, a, to me, it's just a sticking plaster. Mm. So that's why I don't agree with them and that's why I've tried my best to go through all the changes in life whether I've had um, psychological crises or you know the biological 
the, you know, the just simple biological changes of the menopause, I tried to negotiate them as well as I could off my own back and without any sort of intervention, without any medical intervention. I think the way you described that is just so, so important. When you said we need, we need to experience the full range of our emotions. Yeah. The quote unquote good and the bad, the high and the low, because there's so much information in those feeling states yeah. about who we are, what we need, what we need to ask for, yeah. etc. And when, if we start medicating those and, and manipulating those with, whether it's prescription medication or street drugs or alcohol or weed. <laughs> I mean, we talked about weed. That's another big yeah, one, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Blanket. Right. Enough friends, the system. Numb stuff down and, and maintain that constant. Without that information and without knowing that that's coming from us, we, do, we can lose a sense of who we are, I think. And yeah. I think as, as tough and as challenging as it can be to confront those difficult ups and downs, straight straight and sober it's like that's that's the only way we can really live a a, like a true life I suppose yeah but it's scary you know and also I'll I'll just add you did mention as well you've you know you got 26 weeks of consistent therapy yeah yeah well I say you know doing this completely alone no 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 absolutely not and it did require that therapy and it has required another session another session of 26 weeks you know Mm. because because when I got the you know when I hit the second breakdown or not the second probably (laughs) you know just the awful thing is acknowledging that once you've once you've gone into this and once you've tried to fix whatever is happening psychologically that it can happen again and that when it does happen again that you've kind of got to go through the same process and and, and mm. the same way of treating it. Mm. And, you know, it isn't right for everybody, you know, and I wouldn't, I can't lie, it isn't an easy journey, yeah. you know, doing it, doing any of this work, doing any inner work, doing anything where you're coming off whether it's a mild addiction or an extreme addiction or a chronic addiction, any, any work that you do like that, it's not an easy journey. And I have every respect for anyone who does it. First of all, however you do it, I respect you for doing it. Some people, you know, you know, whether it's HRT or whether it's a little pink pill um, that allows them to regulate their moods in such a way that everything gets better, that's what works for them. And Mm. I wouldn't take that battle or that struggle away because none of this is easy. It's as much about like consider all the options. Like it can be so easy for a doctor, and it happens so much more. I think even here in the US, for to just prescribe a pill. Oh God, Paris! Rather than other than thinking about the perhaps months, years of inner work, self reflection, community building, finding tools that work for you. Like that can be such a time consuming, lengthy, in depth, and like you said, 
difficult process, it can feel so much easier to go, just take this pill. Yeah, but, and it is. Yeah. <laughs> which is why there are so many old people um, who, which is why we have an opioid crisis. Yes. Because yes. it's a lot easier to give older people a pill that will shut them up than to sign them on for 26 weeks of therapy, which will help them figure out why they're so lonely or help them <laughs> to reach out. Mm. It's easier to give people a pill mm. that will shut them up and keep them quiet. Mm. And, you know, similarly for treating, um, you know, mental health, any mental health issues and you know i recently lost a, um not lost my nephew died in february and mm. um, you know we found out that it was a suicide and mm. and he was treated with medication and honestly i watched that young man his life changed from being a very very bright young man to being uh, you know, maybe not the life in solar parties that he was when he embarked on that journey at 18 years old. So um, I, you know, I have a difficult time thinking of medication as being the thing that fixes it. Mm. And I, you know, I have a fairly naive view of the human body in that we, you know, if we're created from one cell that has all the information to create this human body, every single organ in it, and that can self-repair to a degree, I'm not saying we can repair cancer, there are various illnesses that we can't repair on our own, but a lot of it, we can, we just don't push it you yeah. just don't understand our bodies enough and we don't use our brains enough or encourage ourselves enough to fix ourselves and we can we can you know it's my belief that we can fix ourselves without intervention it takes work though it does but it's work that's worth it. I'd love if we could just finish up, um, maybe if you could share a few of your sort of tools. Before we started recording, you were telling me about your, your um, you love to swim, but not just yes. swim, you love to chant while yes. you swim. And yes. it becomes yeah. sort of a beautiful moving meditation yeah. escape. And even as you were describing yeah. that, I could just imagine how, what a beautiful escape that is. And even better, you said when you chant in the swimming pool, other people let you have a whole lane to yourself. Yeah, they do, they do. So they <laughs> so top tip my number one top tip is <laughs> I like to get in the pool and I'm either going to do I'm either going to have the Om Triambakam um, chant or there's the Om Namo Guru Dev Namo that one mm, there's Kundalini from Kundalini there's Yoga Kundalini Yoga right yeah either of those chants I will have going and I will I swim between 40 to 50 lengths mm. and sometimes I'm saying it out loud and sometimes I'm thinking it in my head mm. and then I've also got the count the lane count going mm -hmm. in my head as well mm. and it just helps me in one way to regulate my breathing it also means that I'm not just swimming mindlessly it means I'm swimming 
mindfully at the mm. same time. Mm. Um, and it's just a way of, I think with doing those two particular chants as well, I'm trying to give something and make the environment around me also mm. very nice for other people. So even if the pool is really busy, I like to think that in doing that chant, then everyone's got room. There's room enough for everybody and it's kind of giving out this like I like to think of it like, you know, in The Incredibles when she puts this big bubble of love around the whole family and that that's that's why it's kind of inclusive more than exclusive I'm yeah. not trying to put a force field around me so nobody bumps into me it's just trying to make it so that the pool is nice for everybody <laughs> and uh, you know I get a bit like hippy trippy on that one so that's my first one is swimming mm. um that has been and and through all of my tussles with mental health swimming has been swimming and music mm. have been my absolute saviors saviors like um without those two i would have crumbled like massively and very early on but they they are definite anchors for me and always will be uh what other tips Eat well, sleep well. It seems really obvious. But, <laughs> they are the um, obvious things, but that there's a reason for but that. They're the, but they're the they're the first ones to go, you yeah. know, because you think, yeah. oh, I'm so stressed out, and I, you know, and I hear my felt friends saying it all the time, I can't sleep. I'm like, well, you can't sleep because you're telling yourself you can't sleep. <laughs> if you say to yourself, I love my bed, I love to sleep. And if you get in your bed and you say to yourself over and over again, I love my bed, I love my sleep. What your brain hears is, I love my bed, I love my sleep, and you will sleep so much easier. Generally also, I don't have any electronics in my bedroom. Um, that helps massively. Mm. Um, yeah, and just having a routine, I find going trying to go to bed at the same time every yeah. night. It's like you get into the habit of it. And then I find if I miss my bedtime is when I don't sleep. If yeah. I go to bed later is when I don't sleep. It's a weird one. Yeah, it's a bit difficult for me that 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 regulating because the weekends kick it out and my right. work time, my work days are, you know, Thursdays sometimes, but definitely. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So Friday and Saturday night, I'm working till two, sometimes four o'clock, sometimes six o'clock in the morning. So if we, once you get that, it kicks your routine out straight away. So, you know, my weekends, if I was very regimented on the same bedtime every night, every time I hit a weekend, I would be it would be a mess for me so really what works better for me is like I said to you is that I make I've made it so that my bedroom is the place where I sleep so there's not really that there aren't any other distractions in my bedroom mm -hmm. um, the phone stays in the room next door so I can set my alarm 
but I leave it in the landing. I don't bring it into the bedroom. Good tip, because as soon um, as you said that about the phone, I was like, but what about the alarm? And it's such a stumbling block for so many people. Yeah. Outside the door. Yeah, leave it outside the door. Because then it means you have to get up as well. Right. It means you have to get out of bed. <laughs> double whammy. It does. So it's a double whammy. You have to get up. And um, particularly if you're setting your alarm really early, I have to get up because I don't want to wake the neighbours up. So I say it so loud that I have to get up and I have to switch it off so I don't wake the neighbours up. So that's a massive, 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 massive tip for me. And I love, you know, which I'm actually having shipped in from Paris. Uh, Not shipped in, but my friend sends it to me by post. I love Vervain Vervain in French. So it's lemon verbena in English, lemon mm. balm, mm. The, the actual leaves. It is a big sleepy time, sleepy time. Cool, tea. cool. Either that or tea, which is lime, fla- lime flower. Okay. Um, either of those um, are really big sleepy time teas. Tea yeah, time. yeah. And um, it's got so good, like, I, I'll always make myself a cup of tea before I go to bed at night. But it's almost like it's a process because I can guarantee I'll make the tea, put it on the table at the side, and within 10 seconds of being in bed, I'm asleep. I very rarely drink the tea, but I think it's just, I just the thing of me telling myself I'm going to bed now. You know, it's like just the aroma. Yeah. <laughs> brush my teeth, make my tea, go to bed, and I'm out like a yeah. light. And I well, sleep really well. I think we can program our bodies, right? With these different habits, with these different mantras, with these different. Yeah just by cultivating awareness but again we can't program our body if we're not in our body because no. we're disrupting that connection with whatever kind of chemical substances we might yeah. be putting in there so it's just another reason isn't it to just yeah. be as in tune with your natural rhythms your natural processes as possible and, and also not be mad at yourself if you mm. you know fall off the wagon because it will happen mm-hmm. you know, like I I went to a festival and I had a drink and the next day I was like I really wish I hadn't done that I regret it it, it was the wrong thing it's put me in the wrong frame of mind and it's like right okay well that was yesterday mm. so don't punish yourself just go with what is best for you and yeah. today the best thing for me is not drinking tomorrow yeah. the best thing for me is not drinking and if I drink again then you know it, it can always be corrected yeah but it doesn't have to be that draconian I'm never going to drink again because then if you do fall off it, it, it's like the alcohol I'll you know what you call it AA or NA where they yeah. say you know, one day at a time. Mm. You have to have that mindset of one day at a time as well. Totally, totally. Paula, thank you so much um, for coming on to talk to me today, for sharing so openly about your story, um, for giving us all of your tips and for the wisdom that you brought to the podcast today. I really, really love this. You're very welcome. I've enjoyed it. (laughs) I've enjoyed it. And it's just one thing that just popped into my head. My 50th birthday, this is the biggest 
moment for me where I thought mm, about drinking mm. because I said to people, don't buy me a present because you're coming to Manchester. You know, I had my 50th birthday with my twin sister in Manchester and I was like, don't buy me a present. And at the end of the party, I put all my presents in a bag and I had a bin bag full of alcohol, which, you know, people had just thought, you know, I'm in Manchester. She said, don't buy a present, but I'd, I can't go empty handed. So what can we buy in Manchester at six o'clock on a Friday evening? I know. Bottle of champagne. Seasons. Yeah. <laughs> so I had, I had three full bottles of coffee patron i had 10 bottles of champagne and i had practically every alcohol that you would find on an optic in this bin bag and i looked at it i got it home and i looked at it and i said to my mum you know if i drank that i would be in hospital if i drank even half of what's in that bag I would be in hospital. And I was, in a way, I was quite upset because I thought, well, first of all, is that what everyone thinks that they should get me mm. for a present? Is that, that how everyone understands me? Is that how people see me? Because I would actually have rathered a house full of plants. Yeah. But what I got <laughs> was a bin bag full of alcohol. <laughs> and I just thought that was the point for me. And it really was a turning point where I was like, I have to stop drinking because if that's how people see me, that needs to change. They've got it all wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Paulette, thank you again. You, you're so inspiring. So inspiring just the way that you live your life and the way that you've, um, you know, you've really tackled all your issues. We all have issues, right? You've just oh God, really close to tackle everything head on and it's really, really inspi- inspiring, extremely empowering. Um, and just to see you loving your DJ career as much now as you did like 26 yeah. years ago and yeah. having massive success there still. So good for you for thank blazing you. a trail and thank you again. <laughs> What a brilliant story and what a brilliant human being. Paulette has truly had a groundbreaking career and her story, I think, gives us all permission to walk to the beat of our own drum. I also love how at multiple joint points during her story, whether it was quitting drinking, getting help when she found herself experiencing carer fatigue, or even coming off Prozac in her 20s, she really chose to listen to her body and its needs over what other people or society were telling her to do. This is a real cornerstone of walking the sober curious path and the more examples we can have of how to do it, the better. So thank you again, Paulette. And thank you all for being here and listening. If you love this episode, please share it with a friend. And if you listen on iTunes, you can subscribe and leave a five-star review to help other people find this series. This podcast features original music and is edited by alloaudio.com. That's A-L-O-E audio.com.